On today's episode, Anna is sharing the story of Marie Moore, a woman who attributed her terrible crimes to her alter ego, Billy Joel. Welcome to Crime Bar. Ashley. Hello, I, Anna. <laughs> new roomie. <laughs> oh, are we saying that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, okay. Hello, this new roomie. This is a place of honesty. Yeah. Absolutely. And I, I would just like to start out by saying that um, this has been one of my least favorite weeks of my life. And mm. I feel like true crime was weirdly one of the only successful distractions. Do you want to say what you're distracted from? I will allude to that later. Okay. A woman of mystery I am now. <laughs> Honestly, the combo of Ashley's support and true crime helped get me through. Uh, thank you. Yeah. And I feel like I'm reading these like awful stories. And this sounds bad because obviously victims are involved and it by no means should be something that makes someone feel better. But I feel yeah. like I'm reading these things and I'm like, it, it could always be worse. It really puts <laughs> things into perspective for sure. Perspective is a gift. And I... I lately have been seeing and like having people people have sent me memes that are like turning on a you know horrific murder story or movie to take the edge off of things Mm -hmm. you know it really works I feel like it's so weird like we when we started this podcast COVID happened and we couldn't see each other we couldn't like be in the same room so we had to do like virtual or you'd come over and we would be like in separate rooms and so this is like the first time in so long that we are recording in the same room and it's so strange. But my back is to you I because know. I get stage fright. I can't I can't have you look at me during this right now. So I'm, I'm gonna, like I'm gonna take a picture. I'm crisscross applesauce faced away from her. We should post it on our Instagram. Literally on the same couch. Yeah. But <laughs> your back is completely to me. <laughs> and like as we're talking about, you know, weird coping mechanisms, I feel like that's a, a really good transition into the rest of my story. Yeah. Or the start of it. The start of, not the rest of. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> that's it today. Your phone just skipped all of it on you. <laughs> so we all have our own ways of coping when a traumatic event occurs. Some people isolate, some develop paranoia and worry as a form of self-defense and many avoid anything and everything that isn't positive. Like, you know, the people that are always like upbeat and fake positive and they're preaching like super inspirational stuff. Mm-hmm. And we look at them and we're like, you're not fooling us. Like, yeah, what are you hiding? Exhausting even to us. To us, yeah. But I, I get it. We all grieve and heal in different ways. And some coping mechanisms just happen to be healthier than others. Wow, this is appropriate for you this week. I had no idea because I picked this story two months ago, a month ago. Oh, okay. Yeah, it was a, it was a perfect one for this week. But um, what you might not know is that there is an entire personality disorder that forms as a coping mechanism to trauma. I did not know that. Dissociative identity disorder, also referred to as multiple personality disorder, basically occurs when someone has experienced something so terrible 
that they form another personality identity to help <gasps> avoid dealing with the bad memories. Oh my God, I do know this. Have you watched the United States of Tara? No, I haven't. <gasps> oh, oh it's, that was a good one. It is so good. It's a comedy, but it's like a, I don't know. But like, like, I mean, actually really disturbing too. Well, because what you just described, that's something happens to her. And so, but she has no memory of what happened. So it's just for as long as she can remember, she's got multiple personalities. Yeah. And, but she gets like married and has kids. And then it's just about their whole family, like dealing with like who is mom today. Oh my God. It's so good. It's uh, Tony Collette, isn't it? She, she plays the main her. girl. And then um, Aiden from Sex and the City is her husband. Ooh, I will be watching that. Yeah. It's it super pisses good. me off when I hear people like that sticking through things. Yet. Well, it's fictional. Oh, that's that's so true. <laughs> and I guess my next question was, Ashley, um, do you think I'm going to develop another personality to cope with this breakup? Um, no. No? I'm not going to allow that if you're living with me now. I, uh, we're going to work on that. We're going to prevent yes. that from happening because I think one roommate is enough. Yeah. And I already have like five different personalities. No, you A one-woman circus. No. So they say. Um, ultimately, um, back to serious. This means that a person has two or more very distinct personality states, and they also have the inability to remember personal information that they definitely should know. So basically, when one personality has taken over, you can't recall the bad things that occurred when you were in your original state of mind. Mm -hmm. And this is called disassociative amnesia. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like in the show, she and her husband, Aiden from Sex in the City, have a rule that he can't have sex when it's not her. When it's her other personalities because she's not there. Is she there frequent, frequently? <laughs> frequently? <laughs> is she there frequently? I'm like concerned about these fictional Yeah, like she's, it's life. like she is herself, Tara, okay. but then she's got like five other people, like five other personalities. Got it. So when they take over, Tara, his wife is not there. So like they have this rule that like she, he can't have sex with any of the other personalities because it's literally like cheating. I was on about her. to say, is it like cheating on her? It is because she's not, body? yeah, she's not conscious for it. She's not present for it. She doesn't have any memory of it. Things would always be spicy though. Let me tell you. <laughs> um, most of the time, this personality disorder happens with individuals that were physically or sexually abused as children. 90% of cases involved a history of abuse throughout their childhood, while other cases were caused by things like medical procedures or even terrible experiences uh, while fighting in war mm. medical procedures i think it, i mean a lot of things occur like during brain trauma so it's not necessarily oh. you fall and hit but like okay i see yeah if you had to get like a brain you know surgery or something like that things could go wrong mm -hmm. and i don't know if i asked you this but have you seen the hbo show crazy not insane no I, I don't even know that i've heard of it okay it's great it's was my favorite part of last year. Okay. And um, I was about to say, everyone stop what you're doing and watch, but you're listening to this podcast and it's much more important. So. Listen to it at a later date. Yes, after. So it's the entire reason that I'm covering this topic. Over Christmas, my cousin, who is equally as obsessed with abnormal psych and all things true crime, was like, please tell me that you've seen Crazy Not Insane. So I started it the next day and the concept was fascinating, but obviously horrifying. And the show focuses on Dorothy Lewis and her research on how serial killers are made and not born. She believes that every single human being is capable of being a killer. And this has led her on a lifelong journey studying brain trauma and childhood trauma. Throughout this documentary, Dorothy interviews numerous killers such as Ted Bundy and Arthur Shawcross. 
I think every single true crime fan knows everything there is to know about Ted Bundy at this point. Mm-hmm. But for those that aren't familiar with Arthur, he's also known as the Genesee River Killer. Mm. And he murdered 11 women in New York in like a span of two years. Okay. And he, so obviously the story isn't about him, but basically he killed two children and he claimed that he suffered from PTSD after serving time in Vietnam. Mm. And he served the minimum sentence before being paroled because of this. Oh. Basically pleading, you know, insanity and like mental instability. Yeah. But then he kills 11 women. (laughs) yes after being released yeah dorothy claimed that he suffered from disassociative personality disorder from years of abuse brain damage and ptsd arthur would turn into a woman named bessie and claimed that it was all her fault that the murders were committed and obviously a lot of people had had questions about this they had doubts that this was even a thing yeah fbi criminal profiler robert kessler said that the ptsd claim was absolute bullshit and they determined that he was a sociopath. He has antisocial personality disorder. You know, mm-hmm. he's mentally ill. Mm-hmm. Um, meant, many believe that the disorder is a hoax and are infuriated that someone like him was released back onto the streets just to commit more horrific crimes. It's not a hoax, but I think people take advantage. I think people, you know, play up. And uh, there was a lot of questions about Dorothy because they felt like she would bait people into switching personalities. Like she wanted something to happen. And so like they, on camera or like yes. during their interview? Okay, okay. Yeah. Kind of like feeding the... Yeah. Her, yeah. I think a lot of us are comforted by the idea that some people just come out of the womb evil. Therefore, we could never, ever end up like them. And I too th- would prefer to think that people are born shitty. So if I'm not currently a shitty person, then I'm immune from the murderer gene. Mm-hmm. She just thinks the opposite. Um, well, don't you think that some people could be born very mentally ill off whatever you want to call it and so they don't have the same same like a fair like, chance yeah i mean i think that dorothy basically says that you're born normal and then if you had a brain trauma or a series of abuse that's what makes you that way okay she interviewed tons of death row inmates and found that most if not all had been abused as children or witnessed a violent and traumatic event mm-hmm Dorothy, I believe it. I definitely believe that. Dorothy also found that most of the inmates repressed these memories and didn't want to discuss the abuse that they endured. In cases where the individual wouldn't admit to experiencing any abuse, she was able to find hospital records like on this side that state completely, you know, different things. That mm. they were 100% abused and tortured. Mm. And many of the inmates said they never came forward about what was being done to them because the adults wouldn't believe them. Wait, I feel like you haven't said who this story is about. I'm going to get into that. Oh. Like, was I supposed to at the beginning? Well, we normally do. So I just didn't know. Like I, you like you started talking about, but like. It's a long intro. Okay. This is a very okay, long okay, intro. Okay. I've had a lot of time on my hands. Yeah, yeah. No, that's fine. Okay. This is a quote by Dorothy, and it's it's just a hefty one. What brain damage does is it increases emotional ability, impulsiveness, poor judgment. But most brain damaged people are not violent. And psychosis, even paranoia, even paranoid schizophrenia, does not usually create violence. Most people with this disorder are not violent, and probably abuse alone does not create a grotesquely violent individual. However, when you put these together, brain dysfunction, a tendency to paranoia, and early on going horrendous abuse and violence, you get a recipe for violence. Mm -hmm. I believe that too. Mm -hmm. 
She videotaped her interviews with different killers and noticed that a few individuals revealed multiple personalities. And this is where her research on disassociative personality disorder began. One of the individuals Dorothy interviewed was a very disturbed woman named Marie Moore. That's who the story's about. Oh, okay. Oh, that was an awesome intro. I just didn't didn't realize it was like an intro still. (laughs) I don't normally put that much time into my intros. No, that was great. 35-year-old Marie Moore lived in New Jersey with her 12-year-old daughter, Tammy, her daughter's friend, Harriet, and a longtime friend named Mary Gardulo. In July or August of 1981, three other kids started to come around and hang out at the Moore house. These three kids included Ricky Flores, who was 14 at the time, Teresa Fury, who was 12 years old, and Luis Montalvo, who was age 13. Ricky and her daughter, Tammy, were in a relationship. Marie was super involved with the kids and always made time to make the summer fun for them. She'd take them bowling and to the beach and amusement parks. And all of this was really great for the kids. They were so comfortable with her and loved spending time with the family. They even started referring to Marie as Ma. The people around Marie started seeing significant changes in Marie after a couple of months. In September, she started telling the kids that her ex-husband was in fact the Billy Joel. Uh, the? The, bu- the, the Billy. <laughs> <laughs> and for those of you who weren't obsessed with the song Vienna like I was, um, he's a very, very, very famous singer and songwriter. Just to make oh, that clear. I've, do people not know who he is? <laughs> there might be f- a few people. And don't feel stupid. Don't, don't, okay, make, yes, don't let Ashley don't make let you me. feel dumb sorry, and uncultured. Sorry, sorry. This was absolutely insane of her to claim because it was obviously untrue. And she had never even been married to begin with. Marie started telling the kids that Billy Joel was going to be moving back in and that some serious changes were going to be happening. She said that things were getting out of hand at the house and he was going to be straightening things out and adding some structure to their lives. The kids are completely baffled. They cannot believe what they are hearing. On September 13th, she received a phone call and she requested that all the kids gather in the room with her. She explained to them that Billy Joel was a member of the mafia and was in. Oh, yes. There's there's so many layers. To yes. This. So many layers. So, yes, he's a member of the mafia and was incredibly strict and had to have things done his way. So if they were to disobey, he would literally bomb their house. Uh, yeah. This is um, serious. And so she's. You said she's 35? 35. And this all of a sudden just, she goes from being this delightful person to be around to Billy Joel's her ex-husband and things are going down. That's so crazy. I feel like I, I don't know. I feel like things happen earlier. Yeah. Happen earlier. Like when you're in your twenties or something Mm -hmm. like, I I don't know. I I can't think of like an articulate example. I I just don't know that I've ever heard someone develop that age develop. Yeah. I don't know. Sorry. Yes. Ignore me. You're as shocked as I am. Yeah. Marie informed Ricky, the 14-year-old boy that had been hanging out and is dating her daughter, that he would be taking on the role of disciplinarian and he would need to enforce all of Billy and Marie's new rules. Okay. The kids are bewildered because they thought she was really on the phone with Billy and that everything she was threatening was real. Over the next few months, the children were mentally and physically abused. Luis escaped first sometime in the end of October. He had been heavily abused for two months, but it didn't continue largely because his family lived close by and Marie was worried that his 
family would start getting involved. Okay. Harriet had experienced the worst of the punishments. Gradually, Mary Gerdulo started butting in and getting, you know, nosy, and her punishments began. Wait, wasn't she an adult? Yeah, she's she's yeah she's an adult friend that has been friends with Marie forever. Oh, and she was getting punished. None of this makes sense. Yeah. Okay. Teresa was forced to check in with Marie every single morning and afternoon, and was beaten regularly. On October twenty fifth, Marie became Billy. Oh. Mm-hmm. And because Marie had become Billy, the phone calls and demands stopped coming. I don't know why I didn't see this coming. You're shocked. I was. You really sh- thought Billy was on the phone? No. <laughs> <laughs> I'm floored. Floored. He was now speaking through her and able to demand instructions through her body, like telepathically or something. Uh, The first time the kids saw Marie become Billy was when she had come back to the apartment and she told them that these guys that worked for Billy had pulled her over and injected her with something. She said that this injection would allow Billy to enter her body and communicate with her from the inside. Oh, She kept insisting that the children bring her coffee because of the drug that had just been injected into her body. At some point, as she's drinking her coffee, she stops, she covers her face, and she says, I'm not Marie, I'm Billy. When she spoke, her voice was gruff and cold and deep, and the children genuinely believed Billy was in Marie's body. She was mean and demanding and swore a ton, and that was something that Marie never did. After this happened, it began to happen a lot. At some point in October, Marie had told Ricky that he needed to help her get off drugs that she was taking. She said that she and Billy would need him to stay by her side for four weeks during the withdrawal process. Ricky thought that this was totally reasonable, checked out, and he agreed. Marie and Ricky had this absolutely bizarre relationship and they seemed to get gratification out of hurting each other. Ricky would hit Marie twice a day with a bat or a book. Marie would always tell him that he wasn't hitting hard enough, like she enjoyed it. Oh. During this time, Billy had demanded that Ricky and her daughter Tammy break up. Okay. Yeah. Marie continued to request the beatings of the remaining children. After two previous failed attempts, Harriet was finally able to escape on November 27, 1981. She had run away wearing no shoes, no jacket, and no idea what direction to even go in. Oh, poor baby. She was trying to get to her brother's house in Lodi, but she was so turned around and lost that she needed to ask multiple people for directions. Lodi? Like California? I thought the same thing too, but it's New Jersey, so there has to be another one. I guess one of those people had thought the whole thing was very suspicious, so they called the police to check on her. The police were able to track Harriet down and brought her into the station. Back at the police station, she told them everything, but she did leave out all of the names and the address because she was so scared that they would send her back to live with them. Instead, she referred to Marie and Ricky as boss and sir, and she made it clear that they were beating her because of the demands of someone over the phone. She was hospitalized for extensive beatings and remained there for weeks. During her stay, she spoke to a couple caseworkers, and she finally gave them the address and names. When the caseworkers showed up at Marie's house, she denied everything. 
Her demeanor was calm and seemed so level-headed and sane that the caseworkers thought her story was completely credible. She claimed that Harriet had never even lived there and no beatings ever took place. She seemed like the reliable source here. And I think that's partially because Harriet's story was so bizarre that they yeah. were like, I think we're going to trust this person's story over yeah, this person. Yeah, and of person. course, if she's an adult who seems completely level-headed, calm and normal and healthy and all that stuff, it just seems crazy. So exactly. this girl wasn't her daughter. It was one of the daughter's friends that lived there? Yes, it, okay. she, it was one of the one of the kids that would, you know, go over there to hang out. and Yeah, and just sort of live there. Yeah, exactly. So the caseworkers were basically just like, just don't go to that house anymore then. Yeah. And Harriet was sent to a 90-day program. Her escape caused the remaining victims to question what was really going on in this household. Every time investigators and caseworkers would stop by, they'd be hidden. Marie claimed that Billy had run over Harriet with his car. Everyone believed her and only became more scared of Billy's undeniable power. At this point, Teresa, Mary, and Ricky were the only ones remaining in the house. Beatings escalated and often involved thumb cuffing, which is... I mean, I've, I've never done this, um, but I've heard it's very painful. <laughs> it involves cuffing a thumb to the victim's big toe while they're lying on their stomach. Wait. I know. I, and I, I have spent, I mean, I've spent more time than I'd like to admit trying to figure out the logistics of that. So you're laying sort of almost like hogtied, but like with your thumb yeah. and your big toe. Your thumb to your big toe on your stomach. And she would make them do this. Oh, wait, for, no. So hogtied is the other way, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Wait, I'm confused. Yeah, they're like bent forward. I don't know if, I, I honestly don't know. Maybe we should try it later and see what happens. <laughs> see how think this works. So. Yeah. I think it means you're on your stomach and yes. then your arm goes back. And you're on your big toe. Oh, I no. didn't want to Google it. I didn't know what I was going to see. Yeah, so don't I decided. Google it. it sounds like you're laying on your stomach and your arm goes back and your foot goes up. Oh. You know what I mean? Oh, okay. Yeah. Like if I was you're, if it you're, backwards. If your hands and like, like your ankles and your wrists were tied now. together yeah. behind you. Mm-hmm. So it's behind you, I think. Yeah. Okay. Which is, doesn't make it better. It just, no, it's just, it's awful. And she would make them do this for an entire hour while being naked. Ew. At some point in January, Marie and Ricky started having sex. I honestly, I assumed that was already happened long ago. Exactly. I mean, it started with the weird beatings. um, But I want to remind you guys that Marie was 35 and Ricky was 14. Ricky was literally Marie's 12-year-old daughter's ex-boyfriend. This all began when Marie, who was Billy in this moment, demanded that Ricky become her sexual partner and that she had been hurt by men in the past and she wouldn't stand for it this time. Well... Yeah, it's a boy. <laughs> yeah. Ricky explained that he thought of Marie as a mom, but was scared of the repercussions of not listening to the demands. Of course he's a child. No, he's 14. He's a baby. Mary was able to escape by lying to Marie and telling her that she wanted to work a shift on Memorial Day. And since pay would be time and a half, Marie agreed because she wanted her money. Mary immediately called her brothers and sisters and told them everything that she'd been going through, and they insisted she talk to a detective from the Toms River Police Department. Mary was in horrible physical and mental condition, and after being checked into the hospital, she gave a statement about Marie's abuse towards Teresa and herself. Since this abuse involved a minor, the juvenile division became involved. 
And just Teresa is Mary's daughter. No, or? so the, none, the only one that is related to Marie is Tammy. Oh, okay. Yes, okay, they're okay. just these random children that I, I don't know if they're. For some reason, I thought or, you said I thought you said that uh, one of them was Mary's daughter, but I no, don't, no, I, no, just Tammy. Tammy. Okay. It's confusing because it's Mary and Marie. So yeah, it's and Teresa and Tammy. Exactly. It's <laughs> yeah, yeah. The juvenile division went to Teresa and Tammy's school and questioned them. They denied everything, which didn't stop them from going to Marie's house to question her as well. She denied everything again and claimed that Teresa was her godchild and she would never harm her. Long story short, everyone involved was questioned further and Teresa's body was checked by doctors for harm. She was covered in bruises, cigarette burns, and signs of other very serious abuse. When Marie was interviewed, she spun this completely bullshit tale of Mary beating her and her beating Mary and that Ricky would try to have sex with her. And when she denied him, he'd beat Mary, Teresa, and herself. So she just, this whole elaborate tale, and they bought it. Whoa. Yeah. They were just like, hey, let us know if Ricky comes around again. And Marie agreed to this and seemingly solved how would they i i get like the that first case with like the harriet girl who ran mm-hmm. away like how i'll give them that like things like that happen sometimes but to have an adult like say all of this you know yeah well she was saying that mary was the abusive one and that ricky was you know rapey and things like that and that yeah. she obviously just had no fault in any of this wow so teresa was now the only victim left in the house she was abused on a daily basis and the extent of the beatings became more and more severe. During the day, Ricky kept Teresa handcuffed to a hook on the kitchen wall. At night, they'd bring her from the kitchen to the bathroom where she would be handcuffed to the bathtub. Ricky and Marie stopped feeding Teresa and made her wear disposable diapers. She was sexually abused regularly by Ricky. There was also mention of Marie forcing Teresa to perform oral sex on people for money. Oh. Every, how old is she? 12. Oh. Yeah, Teresa was 12. Every morning, Teresa would be released from her cuffs in the bathroom so that Marie's daughter, Tammy, could get ready for school. On this particular morning, Teresa was uncuffed but didn't get off the floor. So wait, you said that Teresa was the only victim left? Tammy was never beaten. Tammy oh. was... The, and this is... I have so many opinions, obviously, about all of this, but the fact that her own blood only blood relative her daughter was the only one that wasn't beaten Mm -hmm. to me is very suspicious like to be so insane but then to say tammy is immune from any harm no but you hear that happening people like really abusive people picking and choosing their victims and sometimes it's their relatives and sometimes it isn't i'm just saying to blame another personality taking over oh you know what i mean like to be able to decipher who they target is i don't know suspicious to me and Ricky's also a victim, so he was still there. Correct, but he wasn't... Wasn't, like, held... Well, yeah. Yeah. On this particular morning, Teresa was uncuffed, but didn't get off the floor. Ricky bent down, picked her up by her shoulders to make her stand, but when he let go of her so that she could, you know, walk to the kitchen, she fell and hit her head on the bathtub. Minutes later, she was dead. Marie and Ricky hid her body in a bathroom crawl space while Marie went to the store to buy a garment bag and duct tape. They wrapped up her body and hid her in the attic. This is where her mummified body would be found almost an entire year later. Oh my God. 
The state argued that Teresa's death was obviously purposeful regardless of any arguments that she fell and hit her head. Yeah. Marie literally told this poor child that she was not allowed to leave the house. She was starved, handcuffed at all times of the day, and unable to escape. Yeah. The defendant argued that there is not enough sufficient evidence to prove that the goal of the starvation was death. When I read that, I was like, can you imagine having that job? No. I, to me, that that is so cut and dry. Yeah. I would, it's just that's guilty written all over it. I'm so curious. Maybe you get into this. I'm so curious. Like, where was her family? I mean, she must have not really had one if she was living at this house. But did she not have anyone in her life? That's what it seemed like. So I got most of this from like the state versus more case document okay. there yeah so they didn't really there's nothing like when you google this case it took me forever to just find that i finally had to just go off of court documents i felt like that was the most reliable okay. but there was no background information about anybody wow it seems like Teresa basically lived there because she didn't have a family or anyone you know a yeah. home but once i i feel bad saying that if that isn't the case that's just all i could find yeah in november of 1984 Marie Moore was convicted of capital murder and sentenced to death. Ricky Flores simply had to serve two years in a juvenile facility after a plea bargain. I think the court figured he's a minor, he was manipulated and abused by Marie Moore, and the death resulted from a fall and not his direct doing. So that's why he got such a small sentence. Mm, For many, many years, Dorothy Lewis, the one that I previously mentioned who studied the disassociative personality disorder. From the uh, HBO... Correct. Yeah. So she testified in death penalty cases, the types of cases where it's important to distinguish whether or not the convicted murderer is mentally sane enough to be put to death. Dorothy interviewed Marie Moore and believed that the justice system was not properly assessing the way mental health plays a role in a crime. Dorothy recalls in one interview with Marie that she was calm, cool and collected and seemed completely sane. In fact, she kept thinking that something about Marie reminded her of herself. Oh, but there, she was, and if you look at the two, it's like they have the same glasses, the same haircut. Like there's oh, definitely, okay. I think it was just a familiar appearance thing. Yeah. When asked about the murders, Marie claimed to not know anything. And at one point, Dorothy had to leave. So she gets up and she walks away and Marie suddenly turns into Billy and told her not to go. Oh, the sound- I forgot about that whole part. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. And the sound of her voice had shifted to a deep and gravelly tone that was so completely different from her normal voice. And only Billy was able to disclose the details of the torture and murder. So he says, so she said, we don't yeah, know. So she claims. Yes. In that moment, Dorothy knew for a fact that she was witnessing a case of disassociative personality disorder, otherwise known as a multiple. Mm-hmm. According to denofgeek.com, the multiples make up the secondary cast which often threatened to overshadow the main subject. Each of the alter personalities appear chillingly unique from the core personality we see in the establishing shots of the interviews. Under hypnosis, the population of the inner landscapes of each of the killers videotaped are allowed to fully develop. They also form a larger community. Some of the alters blame other personalities for the crime they're on death row for. Others explain why they did what they did and why they let other personalities take the punishment. Dorothy determined that Marie did not have the capacity to control herself due to psychological issues that she suffered from. And it's worth noting that no matter how much I looked, I couldn't find literally any information on Marie Moore's upbringing or anything traumatic that she might have endured. Hmm. I think that would have been a very key thing to disclose. 
So fast forward to October 26, 1988, the New Jersey Supreme Court removed Marie's death sentence because evidence showed Teresa died from hitting her head and not starvation or asphyxiation. Oh, okay, yeah. but she wouldn't have hit her head. If she wasn't if handcuffed she... all day long yeah. and starved. Yes, yeah. absolutely. She was resentenced to 135 years in prison instead for other charges connected to the death. Dorothy received tons of backlash for her theories because she's urging the justice system to look at more than just the crime. Her empathy for killers does not mean that she condones their behavior, but she's just trying to say horrendously awful things happen to this person and their actions are a response to the trauma. Dorothy believes in serving life in prison to protect the public, but she does not support the death penalty. She believes that the death penalty doesn't even deter people from committing murder. Yeah. They would have stopped by now if that were the case, you know? Yeah, absolutely. She thinks it's much more important to focus on finding the root of the problem and reducing the number of abused children that may become killers. Yeah, Meanwhile, I agree with all of that. 100%. Meanwhile, many others believe this mental disorder is all an act and an excuse to blame their actions on something else. Honestly, and those people are so dumb. They are. It's very close-minded. Yeah. And that is the story of Marie Moore. Wow. That is uh, pretty crazy. That's a doozy. I've never heard of it in the whole... It's not funny, but just the whole Billy Joel Of all part. people, <laughs> yeah. I wonder how that came about. Like, was she listening to one of his songs and yeah. it, like, spoke to her? And she goes, oh, no, he's, like, literally speaking to me. I think we've been married before. I mean, and I think he wants to try again. Who knows? Yeah, we'll never know. I was so blown away by like the lack of coverage on this case. Yeah, I've never Could, heard of it. I couldn't find anything. That's crazy. I don't know why I keep picking cases that like I find one article. And I'm like, this is it. And this is the <laughs> one. And I'm going to make this a very difficult week trying to write a hour script on this. Yeah. Whoopsie daisy. But I think it's interesting to cover things that we've never heard of. Oh, yeah. I think if you find something that's interesting, just do it. I mean, yeah. if it ends up being a 30-minute episode, that's okay. If it ends up being an hour and a half, that's okay, too. I'd rather listen to a 30-minute episode of something I've never heard of than an hour episode about friggin' Ted Bundy again. Oh, 100%. I'm so sick of it. Yeah. I'm sick of it. And he wasn't even handsome. I'm sick of him and his shit. Yeah, seriously. I've had enough of him. Let's stop yeah. talking about that, dude. There's so many other people to cover. Yeah. We've heard enough. I agree. I think that, like, I tend to write... Especially like the first season we were trying to do two two stories in an episode. Mm -hmm. Those just ended up being so long. And so like even when I they're edited down, it's like an hour and a half. And it's just like, I don't know. It's like a lot for both of us to do a story in one episode. It's so much more enjoyable, I think, like when I'm sitting here and totally immersed in your story yeah. listening rather than being like, okay, and I got to do mine and I got to do this and I say that. It's like having a conversation and you're just waiting for them to stop talking so you can say what you want to so say. So I can tell my hour long story too. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I don't like, I thought that was super interesting. I don't think you should not making it more difficult for you is it if you just find like a short story no not for, for me it's good I just was I was just thinking of our our listeners well it's all gonna be a, a mix of me rambling for probably too long and you finding really interesting ones that we've never heard of so a magic whatever. combo I think so That's why we work Ash. I mean I think that I think that as well all right cool well thanks for listening Ashley do you want to go in the kitchen and uh, hear me complain for another couple hours? <laughs> hey, you're you're the best therapist I've ever had. Oh, thank you. 
Wait, are you calling me? Yeah, you've You're, been like oh, my yeah. therapist thank this entire you. week. And I appreciate you and I love you. And thank you everybody for listening to our story this week. Yeah, so uh, I would not, okay. <sighs> you live here now, so I can't I be like, okay, see you next week. <laughs> see you in the kitchen. <laughs> so uh, I don't know. I guess we could still say that. I will definitely listeners. be seeing you next I week. So that's not a lie. Be, yeah, okay. All right, well. That was a good story. Good job. Thanks, you did a really good job. Like I'm so, I don't think I'm, I'm just as interested in the psych part of these stories, but for some reason I'm not like fine. I like that. I don't end up finding them mm-hmm. and I don't end up like writing those ones. And I love that you're doing it. Cause I, it's so interesting to me. I'm glad to hear that. It's a yeah. good mixture. Yeah. All right. Well, I love, love you. you. See you next week. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you enjoy listening. We owe everything to the many journalists, authors, filmmakers, psychiatrists, and psychologists whose extensive work and expertise we pulled from to share this episode with you. For all of our detailed source material, please visit our website, thecrimebarpodcast.com. If you'd like to see content from today, you can find us on Instagram and YouTube at Crime Bar Podcast. We really love doing this show, and if you'd like to help the continued creation of it, you can support by donating to our Patreon, which we have linked on our website as well as our Instagram, patreon.com slash crimebarpodcast. This episode was hosted by Ashley Brumley-Johnson and Anna Katharina. We'll see you next week. <laughs>